You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. How are y'all this morning? <laughs> awesome. Y'all are sound great. You look great. My name is Carla Gerard, and I'm excited to bring the word of God to you this morning. If you'll take out your Bibles, if you have them, we're going to be in the book of Genesis. If you don't have your Bibles with you, then the words are going to be up on the screen. Let's read the word of God together this morning. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says this. Then God said, let us make man, or some versions say mankind, in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Genesis 2.21-23, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Let's pray. God, we just come to you this morning, and as we just sang, you are more than able to do all things. God, you are a miracle-working God. I pray this morning that you would let the truth of your word, the words of the Bible, fall on our hearts Pray, God, that you would rework our mindsets and our thought processes around this topic if they don't line up with your word. I pray, God, that you would give us revelation from heaven. We want to bring glory to you, but God, have your way in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this series, which we've entitled God's Family, has taken us on a very quick journey into what it means for God's people to love their God with all their being and how that impacts the next generation. Last week, we looked at what it means to be a man and how cultural norms have oftentimes shaped manhood into something that God never intended to be the mark of his male image bearers. God's kind of strength is not an external ability, but an inward reality cultivated with the heart postured in humility before the king. A biblical man walks in meekness, maturity, and is marked by love, which would also describe our Savior, Jesus. So today, let's round out this discussion and look at womanhood. So what is biblical womanhood? That is the question that I'm going to attempt to answer today, and I am by no means an expert on this topic, and I have studied it a lot, but the thing is, is that every time I take a deep dive into looking at this topic in the scripture, I see something new, and I see something tender from the heart of God for his daughters. 
So I have a series of questions for us today. What exactly um, is biblical womanhood? It's, It's definitely complicated, for sure. Is it something that is easily understood? I would say absolutely not. Is it something that men and women should both understand? And a resounding yes should come from all of us in this room today, that biblical womanhood isn't just for women to understand, and it's not just for men to understand, but it's for men and women to understand. And is understanding God's design for womanhood important? I would argue that because it has not been prioritized, that God's intention and design in creating woman has been hijacked, perverted, and misconstrued wherever humanity has existed. So recently, we went on a beach trip, and I like to take, there are not always long walks, sometimes they're slower walks, so they get shorter, but I like to take walks on the beach um, with people, but a lot of times by myself. I like to look for seashells that I might like or some of my friends might like if it's their favorite colors. This one day in particular, I was taking a walk, and as I leaned down to pick up this one seashell, all of a sudden, this huge shadow flew over me. And so much, it was so big that I kind of cowered and gasped in fear. Like, what was that? We were kind of near an Air Force base. Was it an airplane? And it was, it was huge. Um, was it uh, a bird? Or what I thought it might be was a pterodactyl from um, a prehistoric-sized pterodactyl. It was frightening to me, this big old shadow. And as I turned around and looked up, it wasn't a plane, but it was this tiny little seagull But the shadow that had been cast on me was looming over me in such a way that what I thought had flown over me caused fear. And then when I looked up at it, it was something beautiful, God's creation, something super tiny. Well, I began to think in that moment, you know how God will speak to you in kind of strange moments? Well, this was one of them where I'm like, man, this has been like things in my life. Certain subjects or seasons I've walked in where this particular thing has loomed large and caused me to cower in fear when what really exists is not something that's supposed to cause me to cower in fear. So here's the point of my story. What looms large to intimidate is often such a stark misrepresentation of what truly exists that it is impossible to wrap our minds around the reality of what is in front of us. Distortion and perversion create shadows to make us hide. So today, I want to shine the light of God's truth onto the topic of biblical womanhood. Because rest assured, there are men and women sitting in this room that this topic has loomed large over their life. It's caused them to cower in fear and potentially caused them to shrink back from their calling in their life. So my guess is if I did a poll in here today, we would find some of the following. A woman who feels or has been made to feel that womanhood is only achieved if her life is marked by being a wife or being a mom. Or a husband who believes that his wife is to do whatever he feels best in any given situation. Or a woman who has learned that she has to work harder and smarter than the man in the cubicle next to her to be valued in her workplace. Or a man who sees Proverbs 31 as a weapon against the women in his life to prove to them that in his mind, they aren't doing enough. Or there might be both men and women misinterpreting scriptures like Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, and Paul's letters to Timothy, and believing that all men everywhere have power over all women everywhere. And the list goes on and on. So 
So much cultural confusion takes place around manhood and womanhood. So much unnecessary pain, and not God-ordained pain, accompanies these topics. Much abuse and oppression have accompanied the culture around womanhood for all of time. And hear me, there may be and there is oftentimes horrible abuse from men towards women, but... Women also bring damage to the culture of womanhood when they themselves put fellow women in roles of womanhood that are not necessarily biblical at all, or not the call of God on that particular woman's life, as if womanhood fits in a certain box in its expression. In this room today, we have women that are hurting for various reasons, some because of identity issues, some because of bad theology, and some because long-time social constructs have built iron-clad prisons around their heart to trap them in the lie that being a woman is at times too much and at times not enough. But that is not God's heart. God, God's plan has always included women, not as an afterthought, but as a ruling, reigning, co-heir of the kingdom alongside her brothers in Christ. You know, recently I had um, someone sit down with me, a young woman who needed some counsel, and I wish I could say that she's the only person who's ever come to me in, in needing some advice in regards to what she shared with me. She began to share that she felt called to a particular job, a particular role in life that was typically filled by men. She was telling me that she often had people tell her that she was too strong, that she was too aggressive, that she expressed her opinion too much, that she needed to just be quiet, that all she needed to long for was to someday get married and to have children. Or I've had women sit in front of me that the marriage advice that's been given to them is that all you need to do is just do whatever he says and everything will be okay. And through tears in all the situations that would have sat themselves at tables in front of me, I look at those young women and go, God didn't say that. Because here's the thing, these voices in their life weren't coming from people in the world, if you will. These voices were coming from people inside the church, inside Christian circles, that there must be this box that women have to fit in, that God said there's this box that womanhood fits in, and it breaks my heart every time I have to look at someone and say, hey, those are lies. Those are lies. God doesn't say that you're too much. God doesn't say that you have to do this particular thing. And one of the ways in my own journey, um, I grew up in a family where my dad and my mom, they told me I could be whatever God had planned for me. Not that I could be anything I wanted to be but that I could do anything that God called me to do. And until I was older, I didn't experience much pushback on that, except in the church. I want to teach the Bible. Well, no, you're a woman. I want to do this. Well, no, you're a woman. And one of the things that has helped me and helped me gain my confidence is the word of God. I know that I know that God's word says that I can be all things that he's called me to be. I know how God created woman. I know how Jesus treated women. I know how Paul empowered women. I know it to the core of my being. And when I found those things out as a platform that I could stand on in power and in confidence, that's what made me stand up straighter. And that's what made my backbone stronger. So the word of God, yes. 
It wasn't an external shift. It wasn't that the voices around me got quieter, because they haven't in some situations. But just like Brent said last week, for biblical manhood, my strength has come from being rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Honestly, I could spend all day unpacking scriptures and sharing accounts from the Bible that have influenced me in my, um, with, that have influenced my faith on this journey, excuse me. I could speak about women's roles in life as outlined by the queen mother who gave her son the laundry list of Proverbs 31 so he would know of things to look for in a wife. Not all at once, mind you. I mean, how can she be at home raising kids and also out in the uh, ocean like telling ships to come in? I mean, she can't do both of those things, right? So this is a proverb. It's just some suggestions of what a woman of virtue might do in seasons of her life. Or what about the women in the Bible who did things for God? Deborah the judge who held governing authority for Israel. Priscilla who partnered with her husband to apostolically lead on Paul's team. Or all the Marys who Jesus loved, delivered, and healed. Or Jezebel who absolutely lost her way and allowed power and control to rule her heart. Or Bathsheba after being taken advantage of and experiencing unimaginable loss. She lived as a wife of King David and mothered a world-changing lineage. Or how women were valued and commissioned by Paul, and how women were dignified by Jesus, taught by Jesus, and loved by Jesus. Both of these men doing this in a Roman culture that saw women as property and men as iron fist rulers. The Bible is full of radical, culturally rebellious men when it comes to how they valued women. And the Bible is full of women who stood tall in the face of oppressive regimes and individuals. And to understand this, you have to understand ancient Near East culture. And you have to understand the Old Testament to be able to understand the New Testament. But there are also numerous examples of men and women who walked in darkness, who mistreated one another, and who appeared to embrace post-fall relationship standards instead of God's intended plan for humankind, which was men and women ruling together reflect his perfect love to a dying world. That's our call, women, to walk alongside the men in our life as co-heirs, as co-rulers. My purpose today is not to reduce womanhood to what we do and roles we may fulfill, but to teach us what God intended as he made woman. Biblical womanhood, as understood by all of humankind, must proceed from this foundational knowledge, or we will find ourselves in a perpetual identity crisis in the mirror and in all of our relationships. We'll be our own worst enemy. We'll be that voice that keeps us pressed down and quiet. So let's look back at Genesis 1 through 3. And just in case you um, are not familiar with the creation account, Genesis 1 is like a 30,000 foot view of the creation account. Genesis 2 is a little bit closer to the scene and Genesis 3 is right up on it, like an eyewitness account. In Genesis 1, the scripture recounts God speaking the world into existence in a pattern. God would speak, creation was formed, and he would say that it was good, and that day or time frame would take place. On the sixth day, he formed man. Let's look back at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They were going to rule all things. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now God had a purpose for creating humans, and that was to image himself. Man and women, man and woman, if you will, were to be a reflection of God, his ways, his attributes, and his relationships. 
But Adam couldn't do this on his own. So God made woman. And God said that together it was very good. Genesis 2 takes us a bit closer. God forms Adam from the dust of the ground and he breathes life into him. He provides for Adam in every way and he places him in the Garden of Eden. In verse 16, God tells Adam that everything he sees is for his use except for one tree. All things are available to Adam except for one thing. And when God gives Adam this instruction, all this is yours, rule and reign, but don't touch this, then it says that God said, huh, it's not going to be good for you to be alone. You're going to need somebody to help you. I believe God knew that we would need each other, not only for relationship and procreation and all the beauty that surrounds that particular call in our life, but he knew that we would need each other for accountability, for strength, to be able to accomplish what he called us to. We would need one another so that we could help each other. Now, God knew this, but scripture is given to us so that we can know that we would need this and that we would know this truth. Verse 18 in Genesis 2 says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. And it goes on in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. I read this earlier. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. God um, then took the rib. He had, he had, um, he, God took the rib from the man, made the woman, and he brought her to the man. And he said, this is what Adam says, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, it's important to note here that in many translations, it does say that she was made from his rib, but the actual meaning of the words in this passage is that she was made from his side. So if you think about it, you can live without a rib. I mean, if it was loose, you need to get it on out of there because it might like punch through, you know, a vital organ. That would not be a good thing. But if you think about your side, it is the stabilitating factor of your torso, it is what keeps you up straight. It is what protects your vital organs. And that is the description that God gives of woman. She is given to the man for his stability, for his survival, and he was going to be required to need her. So the word helper isn't like she's given just so she can fulfill whatever he thinks is best and whatever his bidding would call for. She is given to him as a partner for his very life. That is how God created woman. That is what God intended for women, not to be subservient or inferior not to somehow twist this around that there's a hierarchy. There is a reason for the order of creation, but it's not for hierarchy that our mind will often put in place in this particular account in the scripture. Here is the woman. Adam was not going to be able to image God fully or to go it alone, so God sent her to help him to be his rescue. Adam's comment upon seeing her is at last my equal and my complement. Her arrival is met with incredible joy. And unfortunately, the English word helper falls short to describe what is meant in the original language. We reduce helper, like I said, to a helpmeet, if you've ever heard that really odd word in certain translations of the Bible, a helpmeet, a servant, or someone who is subservient or inferior, but nothing could be further from the truth in the creation account. God's intention for man and woman is a togetherness, 
marked by mutual submission. Pre-fall or before sin entered the scene, man and woman are co, as Brent mentioned last week, co-heirs, co-regents, he said, co-rulers. Their togetherness and mutual dependence expressed itself in mutual submission and partnership to have dominion over the earth. They were both given the dominion mandate, not just him, and then she comes along to somehow fill in this way. They were both given the dominion mandate. If we have bought into the distortion of the word helper, then what did God originally intend in creating woman? The Hebrew translation of the word used here is ezer konegdo. In the Old Testament, it is mostly connected to military language. God himself is described as Ezer for the children of Israel. Israel is described as Ezer when solicited for military assistance in times of conflict. And here is woman. She is described as Ezer. Ezer Konegdo. This is a picture of a face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder relationship. An equal face-to-face and shoulder-to-shoulder. Woman is sent to intervene, rescue, and save. As one of my equipped class students discovered in her research, and she put in her paper, and this is beautiful to me, she said this and what she found as she studied. Ezra denotes the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, the one who meets our needs, an indispensable companion who supplies what is lacking, one who gives active intervention on behalf of another person. That's who woman is. It sounds a lot like Jesus. So how is it, if God gave woman for help, strength, and rescue, how can it be that the very answer to man's plight and his deep relational need has gotten so twisted up and distorted from God's intent in our world? I would submit to you this morning that it's the fall of mankind. It's sin. When sin entered the world, everything turned upside down. The enemy deceived Eve with his craftiness, while Adam stood by and watched, and saint and sin tainted the perfect. When sin enters here, enters our own lives, shame throws us into a prison of our own making, and we hide. And that's what we see in the garden. Genesis 3, 9 through 11 says this, So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And at this point, the greatest blame game with the most eternal consequences in history takes place. Adam blames Eve without taking personal inventory. When you read the account, Adam's like, says this, the woman you gave to me She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So he points at her. Eve does not blame Adam, but she admits the truth of what happened. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And it's like the finger pointing like this. The result of sin requires a consequence and punishment. Adam will still have dominion, but not without toil. And to Eve, God said this in Genesis 3. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Remember, he's called them to rule and reign. He's called them to multiply themselves in the earth. So the consequence and punishment of sin doesn't mean that they're not going to get to fulfill their call. 
It's just going to have hardship. Opposite of what may have been said, humankind did not fall from grace at this moment. They fell into a grace that they would soon discover. The grace of God would still allow for humankind to fulfill their purpose, to fill the earth, and to have dominion, but it would not be, as I already said, without hardship. Most obvious, the relationship given for our own good and God's glory will now be in constant contention and strain. My submission to you today is this. Do not settle for post-fall consequence relational standards of power struggle and passive aggression oppression. Be aware that this contention is the consequence in the fall and will always be present. But set your eyes on the original intent of our relationships between man and woman, not just in marriage, but in all of our relationships. We are a partnership. Before the fall, we were co-heirs, co-regents, co-rulers in perfect unity, in perfect sync with one another. Sin enters and there becomes a power struggle and contention enters our relationship, but that is not God's call for us. And it seems like in our world, we have settled for post-fall standard and just live in that instead of the original intent for our relationships, which is to love one another in mutual submission, respecting one another and working together. Not a I say, you do. You see, oh. God is faithful to us, and he has for us what we need. You see, the use of the word in, in Genesis 1:26, in God's image, is not accidental. It's a verb. And Michael Heiser says this, the Hebrew preposition translated reads like this, humankind was created as God's image. We are created to image God, to be his imagers. It is what we are by definition. The image is not an ability we have, but a status. We are God's representatives on earth. To be human is to image God. So how do we image God? Genesis 1.26 indicates that we are created in their image. And who is they? It is the divine counsel, the Elohim, the holy, the perfect, the selfless. So let's take the Trinity, for example. Father, Son, and Spirit exist in perfect unity, and unlike the finger-pointing that we saw in the garden, the ultimate blame game ever, the Trinity exists to bring one another glory. They exist to outdo one another in serving, similar to this well-known image of the Spider-Mans from the multiverse. Let's see if we can get that up there. Yep, see this? Now, you could take this as Adam, Eve, and the serpent, like, it was him, it was her, it was them, and But today, for our purpose, I want us to see this as, this is trite, but as the Trinity. I didn't label them on purpose. I don't, I don't have labeled who's the Father, who's the Son, and who's the Spirit. It's an I go, you go. They outdo one another in bringing each other glory. And when I first saw this image, I thought about um, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland, when they all of a sudden see each other and... Uh, just please forgive me, Marvel super fans, because I might just botch the wording up of this a little bit. But when they saw each other, it was like, hey, you are, and they could see the difference. But when they put their masks on, Spider-Man, 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 each have a unique role, but they exist within themselves to accomplish the same task. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father puts the Son on display 
and brings glory to Jesus. God the Son, Jesus, does everything he ever did on earth to bring glory to the Father. And the Holy Spirit is sent, God in us, to bring attention to the Father and to the Son. It is a constant finger pointing in the best of ways. The most perfect triangle. In all seriousness, outside of, you know, Spider-Man, there is a Greek term that the early church fathers used to describe the Trinity, and it's perichoresis, and it's where we get our word choreography. The meaning of the word is around, to give way, to make room, and to rotate. Perichoresis is the divine dance that the Trinity exists in. It is an I go, you go relationship, if you will. It's a dance. When people, when partnerships are dancing in perfect unity and sync, sometimes it's hard to tell who's doing what. Who's the one who's the bass? Who's the one who's doing the spinning? Who's the one who is setting the strength? Who's the one who's shining? It's an I go, you go, just constant movement. The Genesis account, account tells us that we are created in their image. I intentionally didn't put a triangle up on the screen that would make our mind go to hierarchy once again. When I think of the Trinity, I turn it flat like this. It rotates. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, bringing attention and glory one to the other. And that's how we're supposed to be. We are to exist inside our relationship just as they exist inside their relationship. We also participate in this divine dance as men and women. It's not a tug of war or a push-pull situation. It's not a contentious competition or an ongoing tolerance. It is not scoffing at one another or rolling our eyes at each other. It is not demanding of one another or dismissing each other. It is a faithful, surrendered heart before the Father as we exist to outdo one another in service and in love. Manhood and womanhood exist in a choreography. I go, you go. We bear his name as his intentionally created ones. We exercise the godly one another's in our relationship, juxtaposed against the ones that I just said. We love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, mourn and rejoice with one another. We're patient with one another. We suffer long with one another. We are kind to one another. And the list continues. Being a biblical woman and a biblical man is loving one another as Jesus has loved us. It's loving one another as God created us to love one another. We are not reduced to socially constructed identity roles as if that is our identity at all. Let's not ever get our callings confused with our identity. What you do is not who you are. We are image bearers first. We are who God says that we are created us to be, and he created us to be. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because we're family. We're family. We then walk in gifts and talents that God has given us, but this does not determine our womanhood or our manhood. Your womanhood is not reduced to being a wife or mom, a nurse or doctor, a pilot or lawyer, a teacher or manager, a counselor or minister, fill in the blank with what you do. Your womanhood is wrapped up in the truth that you are on earth to be an Ezer Konegdo in every situation because God says so. He has made us to be a picture of rescue and help and warrior strength no matter what he calls us to do. And we are important to his plan. We need our brothers and they need us, women. They need us. 
Before we can understand how to properly operate in our womanhood or manhood, we need an awakening to our desperate need for Jesus because it's going to be impossible without him. Without him, our interpersonal relationships are broken and doomed. You see, in the gospel accounts, we see Jesus in another garden. We see him in another garden as he approaches death. For all that plagued mankind as they sinned in the Garden of Eden, this garden in Gethsemane would be the place that the plan of redemption set at the beginning of time would take on flesh to pay the penalty for that sin's consequence that took place in the garden. In anguish, Jesus cries out to the Father and he asks, Father, if you are willing, could you let this cup pass? Yet not my will, but yours be done. We see Jesus submit to the will of the Father with an attitude of selflessness and humility. Jesus would suffer the wrath of God and he would suffer sin separation from his relationship with the Father so that broken relationships could be restored forever. And we all need a savior. We all need a savior, every single one of us. Jesus is my all in all. It's one of my favorite descriptions of him. And he is your all in all. He is all that you need. We will never be satisfied without him. What he says matters most. But when our fellow brothers and sisters remind us of who we are and what we can do, it's powerful, isn't it? It's powerful. Encouragement is powerful. It's necessary. Because of this, I have asked three of my equipped class men to share with us what they would say to the women of Infocus Church today if they were given the opportunity. My prayer is that this is healing for those who would receive these words of life this morning. Take a look at the screen. I believe some women do not know what biblical womanhood means to them. Without genuinely understanding this, it can sometimes lead to them skewing their view of themselves, which leads to confusion and a loss of who God made them to be. But I would encourage you to truly understand what this means for you. You are not second class disregarded, not cared for, but you are loved, seen, and heard. God tells you that you are chosen, righteous, justified, represented, and holy, and your identity ultimately boils down to what God has done for you on the cross, not what anybody else says about you. I know what the women in Jesus' life meant to him because the love he had for them was reflected throughout scripture through his actions and his words. I hope that one day I'll be able to say that I treated the women in my life with the same kind of love and respect that Jesus did. Our church has been blessed with some great women who are significant leaders, teachers of the word, and disciple makers. God is doing amazing things through the women in our church and will continue to use them as they serve our community and abroad by loving God, loving people, and reaching the world. Ladies, you are seen, you are loved, and you are cherished by our Heavenly Father. And I'm sorry for how I and other men fail to demonstrate our Father's heart towards you. But my hope and my confidence is that God is going to do what only he can do, which is to continue his good work in his church, and that as men do what they are to do, which is respond in humble surrender to his word and his work in us, that you will see a difference in the way that we love, support, and cherish you, because it will look more like our Heavenly Father. Isn't that precious? I had five other men that have taken my class so far, five out of like 44, and they have become precious to me. Some of my, 
most loud cheerleaders. They're added to a handful of other men in my life that are encouraging to me, and I hope that we all get to hear from all the men who have taken this class as we focus on this as well in our um, one-day event in January. That was precious. So I'll end today by saying this. What is biblical womanhood? That's the question I posed at the beginning. It is not a life reduced to roles and responsibilities where identity is found in what we do. It is not a duty-based existence where subservient and oppressive mindsets are formed from outside expectations or inward voices. It is not the damaging misogynistic and patriarchal abuse that the seedbed of our world, I'm sorry, that infiltrated the seedbed of our world and has ridden the coattails of much of evangelicalism for centuries. It is not anything that does not represent how Jesus loved, interacted with, and sacrificed his life for his sisters. Biblical womanhood is a call to every female to live in the power, plan, and purpose of God that he has placed on her as an image bearer and co-heir. It is the confidence that comes from knowing who God says that she is and created her to be. It is the strength and fortitude that God bestows upon his daughters for them to uniquely lead and influence the culture around them. It is a necessary partnership with brothers living out their biblical manhood calling so that what is in heaven will be done on earth. Let's pray. God, we just come to you right now and we thank you, God, for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, for the picture of, um, of what in heaven being done on earth is represented in our relationships. God, I pray right now for every woman that may have experienced the pressing down, the dismissal, the scoffing, the eye rolling from people who loved her and were supposed to be empowering to her. I pray that you would bring healing to her heart this morning, that she would know what you say about her, that your voice would be the loudest in her ear over all others that she would have a hunger and thirst for your word, that she would step into knowing the truth so that she could stand up straight and walk in confidence of what you've called her to do, whether it's in the marketplace, in the church, in the home, in a profession, no matter where you've called her, that that, that would be supported by her identity being secure in you, that you've called us to be a rescue in a healthy way that you've called us to be a part of saving in a healthy way, that you've called us to be in partnership with our brothers in Christ in a healthy way. So God, I also pray for the men in here that they would be confident in knowing who you say that they are and who you say that women are, that they would be confident in walking out their identity in Christ in the ways that you have given them to do, not in a pressure from the world, but in a support and a confidence from the scripture. God, would you do surgery in our hearts this morning? Would you change us to be more like you? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, 
Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church.